Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, New Year's is around the corner. We look at the financial shock that lies ahead for over 2 million Canadians as they get ready to renegotiate their mortgage. And after four months, do parents give BC's new K-9 grading system a pass? Plus, will BC's new housing legislation actually create the 130,000 new homes promised? That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. It's Tuesday, December 12th. Welcome to the Jazz Joe Hall Show. Hope you're well. Got lots to talk about today. Let's begin uh, talking about mortgages. There's no doubt just a few years ago, homeowners got used to low interest rates. Well, since the beginning of the rate hike in March of 2022, one out of three borrowers have gradually seen their monthly mortgage payments increase. In fact, the first half of 2023, nearly 300,000 mortgage borrowers renewed their mortgages with a chartered bank at a higher interest rate from 5.45% for a fixed year, a five-year fixed rate to 7.3% for a variable rate. In 2024 and 2025, an estimated 2.2 million mortgages will be facing interest rate shock, representing 45% of all outstanding mortgages uh, in Canada. What's that mean? Well, I want to show some, uh, give you some numbers here. Uh, based on the fourth quarter of 2023 alone, and these are reports from the Canada's big six banks, 40% of the total Canadian residential mortgage market, uh, that would be about $581 billion out of $1.4 trillion, has an amortization period over 25 years. About 16.4% of the Canadian residential mortgage portfolio has an amortization period surpassing 35 years. And get this, over 7% of the entire residential mortgage portfolio in Canada, that's $110 billion with a B, uh, experiences negative amortization where the mortgage payments don't cover the mortgage interest itself. Those are the real issues uh, that Canadian um, mortgage holders are dealing with. That's the reality, and more is coming in 2024, 2025. What a mess, folks. Joining me now to discuss the issue is Michael Levy, CKNW's business analyst. Good afternoon, Michael. Afternoon, Jazz. Uh, scary times. I was just looking through these numbers last night. I said, i got to talk to Michael about this because, um, you know, there's hope, of course, that interest rates start coming down in 2024. What are your thoughts on just the amount of debt that we have, but how many people have uh, been stretched uh, and financial, um, f- uh, sorry, the family finances have been stretched uh, in this province and in this country? Well, not only stretched, but jazz in some cases out of control because, <clears throat> as you were talking, um, some have negative uh, uh, amortization. In other words, the payments that they're making, never mind paying down principal, how little it might be on the house that you've bought, but the other part is it's not covering the interest. So you keep paying and you keep owing more instead of maybe the same or less. That's the idea of a mortgage, is over the number of years that you take, a five-year term, 10-year term, um, 
or five-year term uh, and maybe amortize that over 25 years. Well, at the end of that time, you want to have paid off your house. And the fact is, at rates like this and people getting underwater, they're not paying off. They're going to owe more at the end, and that's a huge, huge problem overhanging. What's the overall thinking in regards to 2024? I mean, those numbers uh, where, you know, 45% of Canadians... Uh, in 2024, 2025, will be going back uh, to renew their mortgages, and many of them, um, you know, uh, their initial mortgages or five-year mortgages, uh, you know, were at a time when there were historic lows here. What do you see happening in 2024? Well, there's a bit of good news, and it's not great news, but it's good news. But mortgage rates have been coming down in the past several weeks, a couple of months, because the bond rates... Uh, the yields, the bond yields are coming down. And basically, that's where the banks finance their mortgages is from the bond market. So in anticipation of interest rates coming down next uh, or the bank rate and then interest rates coming down the beginning of next year, maybe January through April. Well, if that starts to happen, then your mortgage rates are going to come down. But in anticipation of that, the rates have started to drop already. So uh, where rates were up over 7% for a five-year mortgage, uh, you can now get five-year mortgages at 5.64, 5 5.84%. This is from the chartered banks. That's, in, as I say, in anticipation of the Bank of Canada cutting the bank rate and then the bond markets responding to that. So it's going to be bad. There is no doubt people who have to renew are going to have a big problem and, and, and also potentially be underwater when they have to renew and uh, not making the interest payment. And that, I think, is going to be the problem that banks and people who own houses and cannot pay their mortgages are going to run into. And then where does that lead? Do you think that will happen? Or do you think people, I mean, family finances may be stretched, but they're holding on? Or do you think that we're actually, this is actually happening behind the scenes and maybe the numbers aren't showing that yet, but Canadians actually are going under in some cases because they've stretched themselves in, in a low interest rate environment and then all of, this, this, all of a sudden this hit with interest rates? Not a great number, but no doubt that's exactly what's happening. I, I, I think it's um, not with any great relief. The bank does not want to own your house. So they do not want to foreclose. This is not part of their plan. So banks, if you've got a good job and steady income or maybe two incomes in your house, the banks are going to play ball with you in anticipation of rates coming down and you being able to catch up. You're not going to get any relief by them saying, no, you don't have to pay us. Yes, you do have to pay us, but we'll do everything in our power as long as you're viable to keep you afloat until rates do come down to a point where that equilibrium is reached. Uh, it's hard to predict, but what's the market thinking about interest rate cuts? When would, do you think that would happen? Well, that's a really good question, so I'll stick my neck out. 
Jazz, it's going to happen, and I think it's going to happen sooner than a lot of the pundits say it's going to happen. I believe, I believe there's going to be a rate cut right after the first of the year, January, February, mm-hmm. because that's what that's what's looking like is going to happen. The market's betting that, but I think there's going to be a second rate cut probably by April or May, and that's the trajectory to which we're going. So it's going to be long. It's going to be drawn out. It's going to be painful. We are not going to drop 2 or 3% like we came up in a short period of time, but I think we're going to see a reverse in that tide, and I think we're going to see rates starting to drop. And that, by the way, what I was talking about earlier, that's what the markets are anticipating. Uh-huh. That's why the bond market has moved, and that's why we have mortgage rates lower than what they were a month ago. By the end of 2024, is it is it uh, feasible that we could see a full point cut uh, to the rate c- compared to this time right now? By the end absolutely of 2024? feasible. It is absolutely feasible. That, that could actually happen. But then we've got to go back, and here comes that word again, if inflation will continue to ease. Because make, just make, there is no doubt about it. Um, the governor of the Bank of Canada, Tiff Macklem, the head of the U.S. Federal Reserve, Jerome Powell, have both said in no uncertain terms, if inflation doesn't continue to come under control, they have no, no hesitation in pausing any rate cuts or even raising rates again. So you can take that, if you will, to the bank. Michael, thank you. Thanks, Jazz. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome back to the show. Well, for many BC families, the kids in kindergarten to grade nine, report cards have looked a little different this year. Instead of using letter grades or percentages, report cards use a new four-point provincial proficiency scale. The four points, emerging, developing, proficient, and extending, uh, are meant to convey where a student's learning is from initial learning to beginning to grasp uh, different concepts. Now, the proficiency scale emergence, emerging indicates that the student is just beginning to demonstrate learning in relation to the learning standards. There's developing, proficient, and extending. And proficient is the goal for all students, and extending, of course, demonstrates learning in relation to learning standards with increased depth and complexity. Uh, so no A, Bs, and Cs uh, in regards to uh, how yours truly grew up, and many of you out there grew up, of course. Uh, it's a different world out there, and I want to talk a little bit about these changes in regards to how teachers are responding to them and how they feel about it, and also parents as well. Joining me now is Clint Johnston, President of the BC Teachers Federation. Clint, thank you for joining us. 
Uh, thank you, John. It's a pleasure to be on with you. Yeah, it's an interesting conversation, and I know everybody, a lot of folks have opinions on this. Um, first of all, how are teachers feeling about this change, the ones that uh, were relying on the traditional grading system and then moving over to uh, the emerging, developing, and proficient and extending um, conversation? Well, I think as, as with a lot of the changes that come about in education, um, they're, they're fine with it in the sense of understanding the philosophy of it, knowing what the intent of it is. Um, as always, it's the implementation um, and what that looks like um, that is definitely causing some stress and some workload issues for some of our members in terms of uh, how to deal it, how to convey learning with it. There's no problem there. Um, it's just in some districts and in some places, uh, you know, as a result of how the district is dealing with it and implementing it, uh, it's turning into a lot more work for them. When you mean a lot more work, uh, how in those specific districts? Well, there's a, there's a few ways that it does. Um, you know, in the learning order updates maintained uh, an idea of uh, minimum frequency for reporting. And some districts are, are kind of taking the ball and running with it, if you will, and requiring much more written reporting than we think that the reporting order asked for. So that adds a workload. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, this, this new way of reporting for some has uh, definitely exposed the cracks in the MyABC system that we knew existed. Um, where teachers are trying to get that work done and the system often kind of falls down, it loses their work, uh, and that adds a lot of work and stress to, to them in a time where they're implementing something new. So there's a lot of different ways, but for some of our members, yeah, it is resulting in more work. I'm curious, as an educator, do you think it's the right way to go? Uh, yeah, I absolutely do. Um, you know, I still have two children in the, the education system, um, and one of them is, is getting this kind of reporting this year. Uh, I think it's the right way to go. And I think the, the real stressor that I've always tried to put in these conversations is that parents need to remember this is reporting. This is simply one of the ways that they're finding out how their child is doing. The teaching that's being done, the assessing of the learning, that's all the same. That's not changed. It's simply what's being reported out to you that's different. And we say that the, the most reliable way still for you to understand where your child is at is to go in and speak to your teacher. You know, there's informal reporting as well, twice a year at least. Mm -hmm. um, and those are good opportunities to have conversations to get a really in-depth understanding in addition to this reporting. I'm curious because, you know, um, uh, I didn't have to go through the transition right now. My son's school, they've been doing it before at Odin Delta. Yeah. Uh, but I still struggle with it because uh, I understand what you're saying. I don't necessarily disagree with you. But yeah. sometimes I think, you know, when you have a grade or you have a specific number, 82%, it's much more specific to me as a description as a description in regards to how, let's say, my son is doing, rather than emerging and developing or whatever other language you may use, it seems very vague. I mean, there, has, there is some frustration, and I think it's rightfully so from parents that who want a much more specific description, and a letter grade does that. Uh, a certain percentage, 82 out of 100, does that, rather than emerging or proficient, or whatever it may be, uh, it's still, uh, it's difficult in regards, difficult for parents, I think, uh, as well. Well, I think, uh, I mean, I hear you. And, uh, you know, I grew up uh, going through school and getting letter grades myself and percentages. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, early on, some of my first children to go through got the same thing. Um, and I definitely, for some of us uh, who've done that, it's much easier to understand. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the real question isn't whether it's easy to understand. Uh, the real question is, is how well does it convey? And, uh, you know, numbers are really nice. They're clear, 82 out of 100, like you said. But you have to then dig down, like, where did that come from? And which parts of a child's learning are easy to quantify into those numbers and percentages and which are really difficult to and require actually some conversation and a, and a more 
a descriptive way of explaining where a student is at, because I think that's part of what the change was predicated on, is there are some things that can be quantified into numerical and therefore letter grades, mm-hmm. um, but there are some pieces of learning that really can't be quantified like that and that possibly we're being missed out on. So um, I understand the ease. I understand, uh, uh, you know, that a, that letter being being really clear for some people, though what's the difference between an A and an A plus or a B and an A when it's half a percentage, really? Um, but I think it's that digging down, getting a good description of where your student's at that mm-hmm. is uh, the benefit of this, and it'll take some getting used to for some people, for sure. Yeah, it's still, I think you raise a good, very good point. It still means mom and dad should be paying attention to what the kids are doing, uh, staying engaged with the teachers as well in the respective grades. Um, you know, I think there's still going to be parents uh, that will look at this and say, look, my kids are going to compete against uh, kids from China and India and other kids from around the world. We're emphasizing someone argue learning over achievement and i'm not saying that's not a that's that's a that's a bad thing mm-hmm. but some parents would still rather see rather see achievement because that's how you're going to be judged in the real world or that's how it's perceived they're going to be judged in the real world and they still like to see those grades uh, rather than some of these broader uh, descriptors what would you say to those parents well i think um you know i understand that Perception, again, I think you and I, if I may, are both of a generation where that's probably the prevalent um, kind of thinking, the perception. But uh, you and I could have a long conversation as well about whether people are really going to be judged on merit and competing or whether there's other things that happen once you leave the school world, you know. Um, how you measure someone's achievement in a, in a workplace is arguably as, as complicated and difficult as how you how you. Uh, measure somebody's achievement in a classroom. So I'm not 100% sure I buy that argument. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that what is important indeed is a student's learning. Um, You know, it's lovely when you look at PISA and see how we're doing against other other countries, I guess, for some people, but that doesn't really tell you how much each student has learned, how far they've gotten along um, their path, how far they can get. Um, And that really is what's important. So I I hear that concern. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think as a professional and as a parent, actually, I want to know how my student's doing and what they've learned. And if it means I don't know exactly how they measure up against another mathematics student from a different jurisdiction, I'm okay with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, this ends in grade 9, and then you go to the traditional letter grades in 10, 11, and 12, and that is what you send as transcripts to colleges and universities. Do you ever see that changing? Uh, you know, it's a conver- it's an ongoing conversation. There are jurisdictions where this extends all the way up to graduation. Um, it's an ongoing conversation. There is obviously one of the real uh, points that would have to be ironed out is how you transition from the K-12 system then to primarily post-secondary education, of whatever form it is, college, university, or even some trades. So there would be things to be worked out, but it's a, it's a piece of conversation in different places. I'm not saying I certainly see it coming down the road here, um, but I also wouldn't rule it out because uh, when you look at the philosophy of how to assess, engage someone's learning, mm-hmm. uh, it shouldn't really change uh, just because their age age increases. Um, so I can't say it's coming, but it's certainly conversations have been had about that type of thing, yes. Yeah, the reason I ask that is it, it, it's interesting to say that we believe this new grading system is the right way to go, but we abruptly stop it in grade nine and then we go to the traditional system after that. And so the, to me, there's a bit of a contradiction there because the universities still aren't recognizing the new system uh, here and, and many other universities as well. So I think that is a broader conversation that still has to happen. It's definitely a broader conversation, and um, you know the nicest way I'll put it is that uh, large institutions have a pace of change that doesn't accommodate quick change, right? So you're you've got some very large institutions when you're talking about K to twelve public education and post secondary. Yeah. Um, so the ability to get some fairly significant shifts like that 
uh, they're going to take time no matter how we approach it. Clint, uh, look forward to having you in the studio soon. Thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you, Jeff. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. You know, when we look back on 2023, there'll be a lot of big issues uh, we can look back on, whether it be at an international level, local, or even national. But when you look at local local. Uh, development, especially in news and policy, uh, the housing policy that the NDP introduced, their housing policy this last legislative session, will be one of those big moments. Uh, it may not look like it at this point, but certainly in the months and years ahead, it has the potential to have a significant impact on housing here for Metro Vancouver and throughout the province. So starting July 1st of 2024, developers will be able to start building a minimum of three and up to six units on lots currently zoned for single-family homes and duplexes in municipalities of about 5,000 people. The legislation also legalizes secondary suites and laneway homes across the province and uh, promises uh, to streamline the zoning process as well. So it's very significant. Joining me now to talk a little bit about the legislation, some of the smaller details that I think have to be fleshed out. And the guy to do it certainly is Michael Geller, president of the Geller Group. He's an architect, planner, and real estate consulting consultant as well. Michael, once again, thank you for joining us today. I'm pleased to be invited back. Well, lots to talk about here. Uh, let's... Um, talk about sort of the macro issues first and foremost with with all this legislation the premier was here last week uh he talked about uh, when it comes to housing taking big swings he was sitting exactly where you're sitting right now um let me start first of all talk about the broad zoning uh provincially and especially here in metro vancouver do you expect um over the long term that home prices as that report uh, the report from the government stated that home prices have the potential to come down actually in this city There's no doubt that if you continue to increase the supply, especially both a mixture of more expensive but more affordable housing, that should bring down the price. Uh, But I did have a concern reading the report that the minister uh, presented, and there's an incredible amount of data and information. Mm -hmm. But sometimes when you make a lot of assumptions, if one or two of those assumptions aren't correct, you can't necessarily believe the final results. So I have some concerns with some of the projections, namely the number of new homes that might be built or the reduction in price as a result of these government policies. But Regardless, the fact is, what's being proposed is significant. And for all of your listeners who currently have a single-family house anywhere in Metro Vancouver or in the Fraser Valley outside of Metro, Mm -hmm. there's some significant ramifications of what the government is proposing. So let's talk about, uh, just in regards to housing itself, when you've read that report, I know you've uh, mentioned things on social media, what are the things... uh, that concern you? Like, what are the sort of the big things that you go, wait a minute here, it's not mentioned here or not discussed enough? Well, actually, I've read three reports. Hmm. And uh, anyone who's interested in housing, these reports are available, they're online, you don't have to be a, an architect or planner or real estate economist to read them. They're available on the government websites. 
One of the reports projects how many new homes might be built and uh, how the prices might come down and why they may come down. But another one of the reports talks about this, what they call small-scale multi-unit housing initiative, which is the one that would allow three to six homes to be built on a single-family lot. Mm -hmm. And another report is on what they call transit-oriented areas. So if you, for instance, are living near Dunbar and 41st, where there's a small bus loop that most of us have ignored for years, that area is now scheduled for eight to 12 story buildings at uh, four times the size of the land area. So that could be a dramatic transformation of that area. And it's one of about 60 different bus loops around Metro Vancouver Mm -hmm. that have been identified as areas. So people who own homes in those areas probably can expect to see an increase in value, especially if they get together with their neighbors and uh, do what we call a land assembly, and some realtor comes along and offers it. It would be naive to suggest the values of those particular properties won't go up. They will go up. Uh, What about, so those are all single-family homes in many cases. How do we, I mean, is the infrastructure there for servicing? Well, that's one of the biggest concerns, one of the two big concerns that I have. Mm -hmm. A lot of the reports ignore the reality that there simply isn't sufficient sewer water capacity in many areas that would support dramatic increases in the number of homes. Now, if somebody wants to put six homes in one lot, there's enough water, there's enough sewer, without a doubt. But somebody contacted me today. People who ride the SkyTrain know that there's one or two stations in Vancouver. You go along and the stations are surrounded by bungalows. And they said, well, why haven't they developed these areas with high-rises like they have in other locations? It's because there simply isn't the services there right now. And so that is a major, a major constraint that I think is going to impact uh, the amount of development. Uh, a number of people, especially in the planning world, are concerned that the province is taking over the, the powers normally assigned to the p- municipalities. However, I suspect that if the municipal engineers tell somebody, look, there's simply not capacity to build 25 homes in this area, that the municipality will call the shots, not the province. Hmm. Uh, and what about, uh, I mean, somebody has to build these at the end of the day. How much of an impact, in, there's been constant conversation about labor. How real is that concern? Well, I think it is real because one of the largest developers in the province contacted me last week to say, I, I've been following some of your comments, Geller, and this is these policies are, imp- who's going to build all these homes? Now, he's a major developer, mm-hmm. but he knows how difficult it is to often get labor. He did a development up in Squamish and actually ended up putting up workers from Alberta in trailers because he knew otherwise he couldn't get enough people to build homes in Squamish. And anyone listening to us right now in Squamish knows how difficult it is to find. So that's those are two significant factors. So the labor, labor and, serv- and servicing capacities for water and sewer. So that's going to. So if somebody's going to invest, even a big developer, they've got to take into consideration water, so and all that other servicing costs that that's probably going to come with that. And in reality, I think it'll be the municipalities working with the province and the federal government, because the federal government has historically played a role in funding infrastructure. 
That's how the infrastructure will need to be built because an individual builder with one or two lots isn't going to be able to afford. I helped somebody with a little property in Dunbar. He wanted to put up a six-story apartment building. In the end, the planner said yes, but they said check the services. And when we hired an engineer to check the services, it was going to be $1.6 million just to upgrade the services for a little 35-unit apartment building. That's what many people are about to discover. Wow, that's interesting. Now, one of the things you mentioned on, on social media is FSR, and please correct me if I'm wrong, floor space ratio. And what that basically means, that let's say if a property, and I'm using this as a general example, it dictates sort of the square footage uh, size of the property that you can build. So if let's say you had a 1,000 um, a square feet, and if the FSR was 0.6%, you could build 600 square feet. You got it. Right? Something like that? So on a typical lot mm-hmm. in Vancouver, say a 33-foot lot, fourth, approximately 4,000 square feet, right now you could build under 3,000 square feet of, okay. of building. One of the assumptions in this report prepared by some very highly educated and respected economists mm-hmm. is that that ultimately municipalities will allow an increase from, say, 0.8 FSR to 1.5 FSR. And not just in Vancouver, everywhere in Metro Vancouver. And when I read that, I did get a bit upset because although I once nearly got a vanity license plate that said rezone (laughs) because I made a living getting higher density for clients and myself, in this case, I think they're being unduly optimistic. The other thing is it's not right If these programs are going to succeed, there has to be, I think, an incremental increase. And the increase in Burnaby is going to be different than the increase in Castlegar. But the assumptions, if I understand the report properly, Mm -hmm. the assumptions are that throughout the province, there's going to be a significant increase in density, even for these small multi-use, multi-unit uh, developments. And I think it's wrong. And last night I was on a debate with someone on Twitter mm-hmm. saying you, he is accusing me of being wrong and unfair because I suggested maybe in West Vancouver, the amount of homes or the amount of area built on a particular lot, the floor space ratio or the floor area ratio, as they call it in West Van, should probably be lower than it might be in Vancouver. He said, well, that's not right. West Vancouver should take more than its fair share because it hasn't built very much in the last few years. So you're, you, what you're arguing at its core, without beyond the numbers, is that the policy will lead to greater density but also homogenization. This, with what you're saying, there needs to be some flexibility in the policy to, to allow for local values, local perceptions, Uh, local character to a certain degree in regards to how we build. Right. And to be fair to the province, in the actual planning manuals, and they call them that, planning manuals, they are not telling the planning director in West Van, you have to approve 1.5 FSR, even though Dr. Tom Davidoff used that number for his mathematical modeling. We are speaking to Michael Geller, president of the Geller Group. He's an architect and planner as well and real estate consultant. We're talking about, of course, the NDP's housing legislation that has passed and the impact, the potential impact, uh, on many neighborhoods. Give us a call on the open line if you want to chat about what impact that may have on your neighborhood, 604 280 
9898. Now, one of the things, Michael, I think everybody listening to our conversation, this is going to impact medium size and big developers and people's neighborhoods. But if someone is sitting on a property, in, in your estimation, what kind of lot would benefit or an owner would benefit on, on, a, on a lot in regards to what could be developed? What would you think would be one type of lot that perhaps developers would be looking at? Well, let me say publicly things that I say privately. Okay. <laughs> what I tell my friends privately is the properties that will likely increase the most in value as a result of these government initiatives are the larger lots. Now, some people would say in the past, a larger lot, yes, you could build a slightly larger house, and you would have a bigger backyard. Mm-hmm. Now you can start to put four or five homes in that backyard and have more room to park cars. So my prediction, mm-hmm. and people can tell me if I'm right in three or five years, is that larger lots are generally going to appreciate more in value than smaller lots just because of the, the development potential. So when you say larger lots, what do you mean by that? Well, in Vancouver and many municipalities, a uh, A small lot is around 4,000 square feet. Um, Some lots get up 5,000, 6,000 square feet. But certainly lots that are over 6,000 square feet, they're definitely going to increase in value because this floor space ratio, floor area ratio, let's say it's one to keep it simple. That means you can build 6,000 square feet. And if you're building four homes, it means you can build four 1,500 square foot townhouses where that little bungalow is currently sitting. And let's say if you have a lot of eight to 10,000, uh, that, that, that would actually help you with parking and you could build quite easily that way. That's right. And if the floor area ratio the municipality allows does start to be in greater than one, which is what Tom Davidoff and others have been encouraging the government to try and mandate, mm-hmm. then you certainly can have a lot more building on those lots. Uh, what do you say to those, uh, we were talking about floor space ratio a little bit here, that, that, that disagree with you and say, look, we have a housing crisis. Let's get on, get to building and quit worrying about some of these and quibbling about these little things that we don't need to be worrying about. We're already a decade, 15 years behind now. Let's get on to building and worrying about supply. What do you say to that? Well, I think the character of our neighborhoods is important. Now, some people say that's because I'm an architect. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm a developer too. But I do think that it's the character of our neighborhoods that is what attracts us. And if they start to change too dramatically and too quickly, I wouldn't be surprised if that brings down a government. And I say that sincerely. Mm -hmm. That's why if I was Ravi Kalan or David Eby, they are wise in not telling the municipalities that you must uh, build so much within all these different neighborhoods. Although what they're proposing in the transit-oriented areas, I think that that could result in some revolutionary transformative changes in neighborhoods like 41st and Dunbar and another 60 bus loops around the the region. Mm -hmm. I think you raise a very good point. I mean, there's a healthy balance between a younger generation and broadly generalizing because I think housing, uh, uh, housing challenges impact seniors as they impact millennials and Gen Z. Uh, but there is a desire certainly for the younger generation to get on building 
and there's still an older generation, uh, those of us who probably were fortunate to get into the housing market, live in single-family neighbourhoods, don't want to see too much change too fast either. And there's that healthy balance. Yeah. It's terrific if every lot along the street gets redeveloped. And if you go down the Canby Corridor, a significant number of those little bungalows are now have now been replaced by six-story apartment buildings. Mm-hmm. But there's still some bungalows stuck in between those high mid-rise buildings because the people, they love living there and they don't want to move. And if you want to see what concerns me, go down to Seattle. And there's a number of neighborhoods in Seattle where you got a lot of little houses and then next door is a big three-story uh, building. They call them six-packs. Because people put six homes on one lot, just what we're talking about. Um, and it's really? known that if you Google the Seattle six-pack, it's not a beer. It's a housing development form. Really? We got Vancouver specials. They got Seattle six-packs. I didn't know that. Michael, as always, thank you for your time. Really appreciate it. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.